Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we take a look at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. loves history. Anybody? All right. So we have some who here found history to be the, their best time to take a nap. Anybody? All right, Mike. So I'm going to be watching you this morning. And the reason I bring that up is because we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. And so this history lesson, we're going to go through the redemptive history. I promise it's not going to be boring. I promise we're going to try to keep things relevant and entertaining. But if Mike does fall asleep, help me help him by waking him up. Oh, no, not history channel. No, no. All right. So let's talk about biblical history or just history in general. We have first, when we're talking about biblical redemptive history, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, what happened in Genesis 1 and 2? The creation. So obviously, germane to history was the beginning. And then it was created and something bad happened in Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? Sin entered in and death through sin. So now the world is contaminated. The territories and the world, earth itself is contaminated. And then the human species and the animal kingdom is contaminated with sin. It gets so bad, God judges the world with water. And we have Noah and we have the ark. Then after that, sin again begins to spread throughout the whole world. And so what does God do? God begins his uh, rally cry. God begins his redemptive history by calling a man from the Chaldees, from the land of, from the place of Ur named Abram. And God called Abram and said, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a promise. And in Genesis 17, kings are going to come through your line. 500 years pass, and guess what? Israel is in Egypt, and they have what across their arms or their wrists and their legs? Shackles. They're enslaved. And so the next great piece of redemptive history is God bringing his people out of slavery, redeeming them into freedom. Now they're in Mount Sinai. They're there in the wilderness, and a big event takes place. What takes place there in the wilderness? Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. The law of God. Now this is massive. Now this is God saying, I am going to give everyone a conditional covenant. And if they do it, they'll be blessed. And if they don't do it, they'll be cursed. The Ten Commandments. Then God brings his people by the hand of Jeremiah, or I'm I'm sorry, by the hand of Joshua into the land of promise. And now they have a people, they have a place, and at 1000 BC, they now have their king. A man after God's own heart, King David, a ruddy little shepherd's boy whom God elevated to number one in Israel. God gives David a promise. And what is the promise? Second Samuel chapter seven. What's our promise? That there will never cease to be a king from the line of David. That 
the throne of David will be established forever and a seed of David, one of his sons, bless you, will rule and reign forever. And so then we have Solomon, David's son. And at this time, in between 1000 to 930 BC, Israel has become big. They've become prominent. They've become powerful, prestigious. People loved Israel and they would even come to Israel to see the fame and wisdom of the king. And most importantly, for about 70 years, Israel had peace. One of the few times ever in their entire history, Israel had peace during the reign of Solomon. And it was because God promised David saying, your son is not going to have wars. Your son's not going to have problems out of respect for you. Remember David, he got all the preparations for the temple. And what did Solomon do? He built the temple and he consecrated it to the Lord and God's spirit, God's indwelling happened there in the temple. This is amazing. God is establishing the Abrahamic covenant and it's coming to pass. They have a land. They have a people. They have kings. They have a promise that they will rule and reign forever. And then Solomon dies. And Israel goes from the very top into a bear market and they go all the way down. 200 years later, Israel is a disaster. They went from God's temple, worshiping God, the Passover, the ceremonies, Sabbath days, new moons, a theocentric economy where God is centered at all things, where they would honor the priests and obey the Lord. They went from that and they began to worship the gods of the foreign lands. And so sexual immorality began to become pervasive in Israel. Sex in the, the groves, in the high places, in the temples of the foreign gods. They even began uh, child sacrifice, killing their own babies for the sake of prosperity. Materialism began to reign in Israel as prosperity had become more important than their God. 200 years. Think about America for one second. 1776, in God we trust. One nation under God. 200 years, 1976. Sexual revolution already on the way. Bibles already kicked out of classrooms. A Christian-centric economy and Christocentric um Government has been turned to a hedonistic, secularistic society. And in 1974, we turned to child sacrifice via Roe v. Wade. There is nothing new under the sun. And so God says for 200 years, prophet after prophet after prophet, repent, repent, repent. There was no repentance. So 734 B.C., there was a king by the name of Tigpal III, the king of Assyria, the mega power of the earth. And they turned their sights on the northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah is crying out, repent. All your children are going to die. Everybody's going to be taken away and we're never coming back. Turn to God now. I think of all the preachers for 200 years across this country who have been faithful at preaching the word of God. 
to Americans, repent, 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 and yet they will not. And so the message of Isaiah fell on deaf ears and Assyria came in. 734 to 732, there is massive war. The king of Assyria dies and a new one takes his place. His name is King Sargon II. And King Sargon says, I'm going to finish what my pops couldn't. He was like George Bush type times two. I'm going to finish what senior couldn't. And so he goes and he attacks the Northern kingdom. He invades with all his forces and he takes the capital city of Samaria. Now put that in your little iCloud because we're going to come back to that later on in the message. Samaria was the former capital of the Northern kingdom of Israel. When they fell, all of Israel fell. Has anybody ever heard of the 10 tribes, the 10 lost tribes of Israel? That happened during this invasion of the Assyrians. The 10 tribes of Israel were uh, deported and never returned again. If you look today at our world, you have more Jews in New York City than you do in all of Israel. You have Jews in, in Brazil and in Argentina and in Mexico. You have Jews in Russia. The current president of Ukraine is a Jewish person. They have been scattered through all the corners of the earth. That happened during this invasion of the Assyrian Empire. They took them and the whole country fell, exactly like God said would happen. On comes the scene, 630 BC, about 90 years after the northern kingdom fell, there's a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's message, Judah, repent or you're going to be like your brothers up north. An invasion is going to happen and you're going to be scattered to the corners of the earth. And so Jeremiah is calling repentance, repentance, repentance. Meanwhile, Assyria has fallen and there's now a new empire, a new superpower of the world, Babylon, present day Iraq. So north and to the east of Jerusalem. And now Babylon has become super empowered and Babylon wants to be the rulers of the world. So there's one kingdom standing in their way, Egypt. So what does Babylon do? King Nebuchadnezzar attacks Egypt. And so open your Bibles and you'll see in our slide, uh, Dasha, if you can bring it up. It's time for history time. And so there is some of our uh, texts in which we're just going to briefly look at. So open up to 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 34. 2 Kings 23 verse 34. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoiahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He accepted or he exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So this is the early 600s B.C., and Israel, or the southern kingdom of Judah has now gone to Egypt for protection. They see Egypt as their form of NATO. 
And they're saying, okay, if we give money to the Egyptians, the Egyptians will therefore give us our protection. And so the king of Judah raised all this money and he taxed the people until they were poor, poor, poor. And then in 605 BC, in the battle of Calchemish, Egypt and Assyria fall to the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians look and there's only one little bitty nation that stands in their way from complete denomination, domination, denomination, domination of the Middle East. And that is the kingdom of Judah. And so now look at verse chapter 24 and verse one. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. So Egypt fell and now uh, Judah is like a little puppet master to Babylon. And so the king of Judah is paying tribute now to Babylon for three years. And finally, in, in verse one, it says, then he turned and rebelled against him. So then the kingdom of Judah said, enough of the Babylonians. We are going to fight and take back our own country. Well, that didn't go over too well. Babylon comes in three different waves. And as you can read in chapter 24 and 25, Jerusalem is leveled. In the first wave, all the good stuff is taken away. The gold and the treasures and even the smart people and the capable men and the people that can bring Babylon value. Who is one of the young men who would be taken away? Daniel. Daniel would have been one of these young men who Nebuchadnezzar saw potential in him and kept him alive and deported him off to Babylon. So here you have a mess. Judah is in deep trouble. The temple has been destroyed. Uh, Babylon is completely around them. They're taking their money. They're taking their people. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah prophesies of hope. That's the context. It's a very dark, dark picture. And then God drops the gem of Jesus Christ, the beacon of light in that tunnel of darkness. And God is telling his people, there is hope. Now turn to your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to see Jesus in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, as we talked about in Isaiah, God, oftentimes when he gives prophecy, he gives short-term prophecies for the hearers of that day and then long-term prophecies for the big picture fulfillment of God's redemptive history. In here, in Jeremiah 31, 15, we have two prophecies, the, the prophecy that would happen at the time of Jeremiah and a further prophecy, which would include Jesus Christ. So it says, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children. Question is, who is Rachel? Who is Rachel? Do you remember her? 
No, she wasn't a harlot. The wife of? Yeah, who said that? Yay! The wife of Jacob, also known as who? Israel. She was the wife of Israel. You remember, Jacob goes to Uncle Laban. And he sees Rachel and he's like, oh, I got to have her. Like he's drooling and he's just like, wow, heart emojis all across his mind. And so he goes to marry her and it turns out that Uncle Lay pulls the old bait and switch. Next thing you know, he's married to Leah. And Uncle Laban said, it's tradition. You work off the debt and I'll give you Rachel too. And the Bible says that that time was like a blink of an eye because uh, uh, Jacob loved Rachel. And so they married and Rachel was barren. She couldn't give kids. Leah gave Jacob a bunch of sons. Bilhah, who was the servant or the maidservant or mistress of uh, Rachel, also gave him sons and yet she's barren. So Genesis 30 chapter one says, Jacob, you give me children or I die. Be very careful what you wish for. In Genesis chapter 35 and in verse 16, Genesis 35, 16, it says, Then they, Jacob and Rachel, journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go in Ephrath, Rachel began to give labor and she suffered severe labor. And when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing for she died that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Rachel had two sons. Who were they? Joseph and Benjamin. You remember in Genesis 49, uh, Jacob is blessing his sons, but he doesn't bless Joseph. What does he do instead? There's not 12 tribes anymore. There's 13 tribes. Israel didn't bless Joseph, but blessed his two sons, and they both became tribes. And what were their names? Do you remember? Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh. And then the second child was Ben-Oni, or Ben-Hamin, Benjamin. And Ben-Oni means the son of my trouble. When Rachel gave birth to Ben-Oni, she died. And so the term Rachel or weeping Rachel in Israel became synonymous with Israel weeping over her sons, over her children. It became synonymous with the children of Israel, either in disobedience or because of their chastening, being a land of mourning and a land of sorrow. So in uh, Jeremiah 31, 15, the question is, why is she weeping? Why is Israel crying? Why is the mothers of Judah crying over their children? It says in the very last part of verse 15, because they are no more. What was going on in this time? Babylon had invaded. 
And why was there weeping and wailing in Ramah? Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So what was Ramah? It was where the FEMA camps were. It was where the deportation site was. It was the concentration camp Babel, King Nebuchadnezzar had built, and he was rounding up all the people from Judah, sending them to Ramah. They were getting processed, and then they were being hauled off to Babylon. Why was there weeping and wailing in Ramah? Because that's where all the mothers and all the children and all the men were as they were waiting to be deported. It was a time of great, great trauma. All of Israel mourned because not only their own lives, but what had God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? A people, a place, a promise, and kings. Northern 10 tribes are gone. Bottom two tribes are going. There's no more land. There's no more people. There's no more promise. There's no more kings. God failed. There's weeping and wailing in Ramah. There would be one more time in Israel's history where there's weeping and wailing in Ramah. Does anybody remember? Turn to the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where did the Magi originate? There's a footnote. It, start, uh, it was believed to be actually beginning in Babylon. Do you know who the first group of these Magi would have been? The people that Daniel was mingling with. It started around 500 BC and it was there at the time of Christ. It was literally happening with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. So the Magi came from the east, these wise men. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we've come up to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search out carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Fake news. 
Verse 9, and after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod that magi left for their own country by another way now when they had gone out behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said get up take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of my son, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Then, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great joy. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. In the time of Jeremiah, Israel wept because they were being disobedient and God chastened them. In the time of Christ, Israel wept because Jesus, their king, had come. And the the king and the priests and the people rejected Jesus Christ. And so in both times, God extends, Israel rejects, and there is weeping and wailing. Now, why is this so important? Because Jeremiah now ties Jesus to Jeremiah chapter 31. So we have the arrival of the king, weeping in Ramah, and now we have what the king ushers in. For you Bible students, what is Jeremiah 31 all about? What is the big portion of Jeremiah 31. It's it's a real key chapter in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 begins with weeping and wailing, and then God goes on and says, look at verse 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their territory. God is promising Israel, they're coming back to the land. But why would God promise that? Look at Jeremiah 31, 31. And this is the big part of Jeremiah's prophecy. And what is it? What is he prophesying or ushering in? Jeremiah 31, 31. First comes the king, weeping in Ramah, and then the king ushers in what? 
It's also on the screen. There we go. The new covenant. Jeremiah is saying Jesus is all over Jeremiah 31. Why is that important? Because God now begins to teach of a new covenant that he is going to institute. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So here we have Jesus ushering in this new covenant, not like the covenant of old. Which one was that? The Mosaic law, the law of Moses. God is saying, I'm doing something new, not like the old law. What was wrong with the old covenant? It was impossible for any man or woman to adhere to, Greg says, and he's right. It wasn't that the law was wrong. It was that the people were wrong and the people couldn't keep God's law. And the law came in and something specifically came with it. The law was introduced and immediately something happened. Do you guys remember? It was there, Mount Sinai, the clouds, and all this is going on, and God has consecrated the hill. Wrath and judgment. And then what does God do? 3,000 people die that day. Think about this. The law of God is given. 3,000 people die. Why? Because Paul calls the law the ministry of death. Why? Because those who violate it die. And again, it's not the law's fault. It's our fault. We can't adhere to its standards. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law has come. The law tells you you're a sinner. The law tells you that the wages of sin is death. But the law says you have to keep it perfectly. And the reality is you and I can't. So God tells Jeremiah in the bleakest time of their history, there's coming a hope. You will return to the land. And not only will you return to the land, but I have a new will and testament for you. I have a new agreement for you. I have a new uh, covenant for you, not like the one of old. So what does God do? He ushers in the new covenant. And this new covenant exceeds the old covenant. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but... 
The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the new covenant at the center of it all has Jesus Christ. And look at Hebrews chapter seven, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter eight and verse seven. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So if the law of God can save people, there would be no reason for another covenant to be enacted. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach every his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. What the author of Hebrews is saying is the old covenant has been replaced with the new covenant because the old covenant has been made obsolete. Now, when we think of obsolete, we think it has no value. But that's not what the writer is saying. Does God say, let's just take the Ten Commandments, light them on fire and throw them away? Absolutely not. Does God say that because in this new covenant, it's by faith we're not to obey and not to be moral and not to do right? Absolutely not. What the author is saying is it's an old model. It's outdated. Like the iPhone 1 is obsolete today compared to iPhone 20 or whatever we are now. There's a new model and that new model has replaced the old. And so this old covenant has therefore replaced the new covenant. So here's the question. How does a person partake in the new covenant? So it first starts with God choosing you. Then it's you choosing God. Then it's you being endowed by the Holy Spirit. And then you having God's will and testament, your name written in the Lamb books of, Book of Life, and you now having all of God's inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, I wasn't going to teach you, but we could flip there. Ephesians 1, we see God selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit seals. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. God chose you from before the foundations of the earth, not because you're good, not because you're funny or you're cute or you have anything to offer God. God chose you because he saw you from before the foundations of the earth and his affection was set upon you. Because he is kind and good. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 tells us. 
Then we see 7 through 11, the son's blood is shed for the remission of our sin and God's Holy Spirit seals us for their day of redemption. So God chooses us. We then choose him. And what is the avenue or the means in which we choose him? Through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. For by grace... You have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God knew you before the foundation of the earth, sealed you and called you with his effectual call. And then you responding to the unction of the Holy Spirit say, Jesus, I believe. You bend the knee, you repent. The Holy Spirit, Romans chapter eight comes in you. It seals you. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The spirit of God seals us protects us so that nothing could come against us so that we are more than conquerors in him. Romans chapter eight. That's the spirit filled life. And when you've been given the spirit, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and on their mind and I will write them. And he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And then the the author goes on and says that because of Jesus' death, We have been ratified into this new covenant. When you think of a will, what has to happen? Somebody has to have a wealth. They have to write it in a will. But then how is a person inherited? Somebody has to die. And the author of Hebrews is saying we have a new mediator in this new covenant. And then this mediator died for us, ratifying God's new covenant, new will, and new testament for us. That's why Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, I have not come to throw away the law. But what does he say? To fulfill the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus is the fulfillment to the children of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, here's a question. Going back to Jeremiah 31, why does God say it's going to the house of Israel and the house of Judah? When we look today and we see the new covenant, we see the church. We see largely the Jews rejecting. So why does it say in those days, the spirit's going to fall on Israel and Judah? Okay. 
Okay, Greg? So God's sovereignty in choosing some and not others. Well, technically, God fulfilled his promise perfectly. He fulfilled it absolutely perfectly. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me. What happens in Acts 2? We should know that chapter very well. It's a very important chapter in the Bible. What's going on in Acts 2? Jesus in Acts 1 ascends to heaven, and then in, in verse 7, or in verse 8 of chapter 1, God is, or Jesus is uh, telling his disciples, his apostles, and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts 2, Peter begins to preach on the day of Pentecost, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Where are they at? In what city? Jerusalem. And what is the, uh, and Jerusalem is the capital of what kingdom? The kingdom of Judah. So technically speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on the house of Israel for, or the house of Judah in Jerusalem, and all the people there were males, Jews from all the known world. They've come for Pentecost. They were all Jews. They were all saved there in Jerusalem. Then what happens? The church is established, chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and then chapter 7, Stephen's martyred. And what does that martyrdom do to the church? Scatters them. They have to flee Jerusalem. And so now the church goes out, and in chapter 8, you have Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist goes to Samaria. He preaches the word of God in Samaria, and the Samaritans are saved. Remember what I told you to put in your iCloud a little while ago? Why is Samaria important? It was the former capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what is God doing? The spirit of God fell first in Jerusalem, Judah, then in Samaria, Israel, and then to the Gentile world. Jesus came to save who? The Jews. He came not for you and me. He came for the Jewish people. I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to the Jews The Israel, the Jews were to be the light to the world. They were to be the salt of the earth. They were to be the ones in which they got the gospel out to the world, but they rejected their king. God honored Jeremiah and Israel by giving them the new covenant, but it only fell on select people to the Jews first and then to the Greek. So God ultimately fulfilled his prophecy through the early church. Spirit fell on the Jews first and then on the Gentile people. So we have now the the arrival of the king, the new covenant, which brings eternal life to all who will believe in Christ. And then quickly and lastly, we'll run through this part. Jeremiah chapter 23. We go from the struggles of the world and and war 
and poverty and pain and weeping and sorrow. And Jeremiah looks way into the future and he looks to the kingdom of Christ here on earth. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse one. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the sheep or the shepherds who have tended my people, who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and I have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. And I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend to them and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So, uh, uh, Jeremiah is crying out to the people and he's giving an indictment against the shepherds of Israel. Who would the shepherds of Israel be? The priests? The priests and whom else? Or who else? One of those. So you got the priests, the king, and then who else? There's another, there's another group that are known as the anointed ones in the Old Testament. Priests, kings, and prophets. There you go. That's the shepherds of Israel. And God's indictment against the king who had turned coat and, and instead of turning to God, went and turned to Egypt. The priests and the prophets, he had an indictment for him. And what the indictment was, was this. In Jeremiah 5, Verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And here's the indictment. And my people love it. What was the message of the priests and the prophets? Jeremiah 6, peace, 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 says the Lord. And God says, but there is no peace. The prophets are going around saying, don't worry about it. God's in control. Everything's going to work out. It's going to be a-okay in the end. We're God's people. He has our back. Don't worry. Peace, peace. And the people of Israel or Judah, they were, they were loving it. My people loved it. Just like today in church, the people will raise up teachers so that they can tickle their ears and be told what they want to be told. Same thing in Israel, in Judah. They were prophesying falsely and giving people a false hope. And God says, we are going to judge you for that. Now in Jeremiah 23, there was a king reigning. He happened to be the uncle of King Babylon, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And his name was Zedekiah. Do you know what Zedekiah means in English? 
the Lord our righteousness. If you look at Jeremiah, back to our text, Jeremiah 23, 6, it says that this king will be called what? Jeremiah 23, 6. He'll be called Zedekiah. That was God in, in indictment against the shepherds of Israel. The current king Zedekiah was not righteous. Second Kings tells us that he was a wicked man. And God says, no, I'm going to bring a real Zedekiah, a real Lord who is truly righteous. And who is that? King Jesus. We see verse five and we covered it pretty extensively last week. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, why is that important? You know it. Why is, why does Jesus have to be a part of David? Because God promised David what? That there's going to be a king ruling and reigning forever. Jeremiah says, this ruling king is going to come from David's branch. And how will he rule? He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse was David's father. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will judge and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. And the lamb will dwell with the lion, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them all. Also the cow will graze with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy hill. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, that's Jesus Christ, who will stand as a signal for his people and his resting place will be glorious. Can someone just turn briefly to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1? Oh, I'm sorry, Micah. Chapter 4 and verse 1. And what does it say, if anybody's there? And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. Jacob is the former, or Jacob also known as? Israel. 
Israel, the house of the God of Israel, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his own vine, under his fig tree, and with, with no one to take, to make them afraid. For the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord is the host, goodness, I cannot breathe. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as in for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. And that's the final promise of verse 6, Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So Jeremiah talks about the first coming of Christ and how they rejected him and Israel would mourn as the children would be slaughtered. But this king would usher in the new covenant. That new covenant is established in uh, Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then God says to Israel and to the world, even though we're at war, even though it's dark, even though it's bleak, even though the promises of God don't seem like they're going to come to pass, there's coming a day when King Jesus will come rule and reign forever. There will be peace, wisdom, holiness, goodness, righteousness, and love. And in that, us, God's covenantal people, will dwell with him securely forever. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that history is his story. I mean, God, you use the, the nations of the world as pawns in your hand. The nations may rise up against you and you scoff because you are the almighty one, the all-powerful one, the ancient of days, the great I am, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who knows all. And you know yesterday, and you know today, and you know forevermore. And God, you have promised us through faith in Jesus Christ, this acceptance into the new covenant in which Christ ratified it through his death, validating our contract and covenant with him, making you, Lord, our King and God, and making us your children, a part of your kingdom, ruling and reigning forever. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you. And we pray, Lord, even in the darkest hour, just like in the message of Jeremiah, we would recall the hope that you have given to us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. A thousand may fall at our left, 10,000 at our right, but it will not harm you, beloved of the Lord. Thank you, God, for all you've done. In Jesus' name, 
And God, we want to pray for Ukraine and for Russia and for all that's going on in that part of the world. May injustice become justice in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.